It would be wonderful to hear in your words why the book is called To See Paris and Die. It, it was an idiom. It was an idiom that captured the sort of the impossibility uh, of uh, in Soviet times of uh, of traveling abroad and experiencing the West firsthand. I found it very illuminating how you painted this picture starting in the thaw after the death of Stalin and this influx of Western culture um, and assimilation, uh, domestication of this culture and then through to the end of the Soviet Union and as you say this breaking up and when the Soviet Union was lost in a way this Western dream was lost at the same time and what struck me was the huge volume of culture being imported into the Soviet Union in the 1950s, films and books. W would you be able to say something about that? Because that came as a real surprise to me. The sheer uh, quantity of, um, of imports is, is, is staggering, is enormous. And it only gets... Um, it only gets larger and larger as the decades go by. Um, so this is uh, the first moment of, of this sort of incredible influx, um, the mid to late 50s. Uh, and it sets up various patterns, channels, institutions, um, and ways of translating and mediating um, uh, Western imports. Uh, but the sheer quantity uh, becomes ever greater as the Soviet decades go by. Um, it's just one of the things that happens is that um, Western imports uh, become kind of such an inseparable and almost invisible part of Soviet life that by the 70s, they're easy to take for granted. Uh, in the 50s, uh, they are remarkable and exotic and you really cannot not notice them. Uh, so um, the, yeah, the, the quantity is enormous. Uh, but it doesn't quite stop at the at the conventional endpoints when we think about you know uh, when we build our political history. So when we think about 1964 or 1968, right? Uh, those those bookends don't really work for the process that I'm um, that I'm descri describing, and I don't think they work for many other processes that begin in the 50s. And and you say at one point that you think that um, the Soviet Union was was taking in a lot more foreign culture films and books than, say, the U.S. at that time. That appears to be certainly so. And the Soviet Union had a had broader circulation, um, say, for foreign films. Foreign films, American, um, American distribution space was carefully guarded um, against foreign cinema. Um, and uh, foreign cinema, just like in the Soviet Union, it was... Um, when kind of foreign uh, foreign cinema uh, renaissance began in the United States at about the same time, also also in the uh, late 50s and, and early 60s, um, foreign cinema, like in the Soviet Union, in the United States was eroticized and it was exotic and, and so on. But it was not as widely and broadly distributed geographically and socially as it was in the Soviet Union. We get to a point where, you know, a neighboring movie theater in a provincial uh, in a provincial town um, in the 70s is screening films with, you know, Alain Delon, Jean-Paul Jean Belmondo, um, you know, uh, Anouké Mer. So, it, you know, you get, you, it, it's, it, it's distributed far more broadly and it affects a broader, socially broader strata of the population than I think it does in the United States, mm. where it's limited to New York and college campuses and various 
um, intellectual enclaves. very interesting and it's very interesting how you um well, what you tell us about translation and dubbing and how it's not translation in the traditional understanding of the word when it comes to literature for example Catherine the Rye which you talk about and how the translator if I understand correctly uses the translation to try out lots of new uh not new russian words but to try out words that are uh, fairly obscure slang words and bring them into sort of more mainstream the book brings them into more general parlance and so there seems to be this process um of it's a third culture you've got the russian the soviet culture the imported culture and then the third culture or the third artifact which is what they make of it and that's what i really um love about the book because it moves away from these uh, this sort of polarised look at East and West and looks at the nuances and subtleties and incredible creativity of some of this translation and, and the dubbing, the wonderful descriptions in the book of the dubbing process and these very skilled actors and actresses who, who, who learnt to do this dubbing process to the point where it was an art in itself, an art form in itself and they made a kind of a a new film out of it in some ways. I remember when I first went to Russia being really struck by the particular Western authors that they were interested in, like O. Henry or someone like that, and I didn't understand why, because they talked about them in a way that I didn't really understand. And now I understand reading your book more why that was the case. Oh, I'm so glad! I'm so glad to hear that, because it is an interesting, it's such a fascinating phenomenon, because there are authors who, you know, you when their domestic cultures don't have this, right? They're not central, they're not really important. Some of them are good, some of them are funny, or some of them are creative, but they're not, you know, they're not the kind of, they don't have the kind of spotlight and centrality that they assumed for Soviet readers. Uh, and this process is really fascinating. Uh, and in in the book, I mean, I totally know what you mean about O. Henry. Uh, Goldsworthy is another one of these authors. There's a whole, yes. you know, there's a whole lineage of, of um of writers one could um, one can try write a whole book uh on just these kind of you know marginal obscure or not particularly significant figures who become uh quintessential you know quant- quintessential representatives of their cultures in the soviet in the soviet translation space yes. so i use um i use remark as one of I, I have two figures of this of this kind one is eric maria remark uh, who is read in the you know in our context he's read for only one book uh, all quiet on the western front yes but he was he wrote a lot of <laughs> he wrote a lot of novels mm. uh, most of which were translated and um, and loved in the Soviet Union uh, and received as as um, books about us as books about eternal universal values as books about as books that taught love and you know the talk talked about intimate life in a way that soviet soviet literature and soviet culture did not and then i have another one of these figures uh and that's rockwell kent who was uh, you know who um who was well known in the united states in the 1930s as a graphic artist as an illustrator of books um but 
but then you know he was a, he was a realist and he always blamed uh, abstract expressionism and modernism in general uh, for kind of his declining fortunes. Uh, and it's only in the Soviet Union that he was able to recover his spotlight. And there he was he was received as a quintessential American. Uh, American artist and as you know a great realist and you know all of these things that uh, all of these appellations that were attached to his name so that's I, I'm really glad that that you brought that up because um, I, I was hoping to uh, to touch on that as I was writing the book I was hoping to um, at least begin thinking with my readers and in and interpreting this this um, this curious process whereby translation itself right in by the very act of translation choosing s- to bring somebody right you emph- you already emphasize them right you yeah. already place them kind of you give them a central role of some kind uh, so the way translation kind of rearranges you know s- kind of margins and centers mm. uh, of of you know cultural margins and centers and what's important and what's not important um, and the other thing I I was really um, I was really pleased to hear when you when you said um, that um, that you found the book successful in in uh, capturing uh, the creative act, the kind of the creativity that went into the making of this kind of third culture, this hybrid culture of mm. uh, you know of, of uh, translated imports. Um, and the reason I was so um, I was so delighted to hear that is that um, when I set out to uh, to work on this, I, you know, before I went to the archives or as I was going to the archives, I didn't really think about trans, you know, I didn't really think about translation and that's that it would be what I'd be writing about. Mm. I, I mean, I wanted to write about, I wanted to research uh, the import of Western, um, you know, Western cultural imports, and I wanted to look at institutions and I wanted to look at reception, uh, but I, I didn't have kind of, I didn't have the the paradigm of translation, which is what this book really, you know, this the centrality of this paradigm to this book, when it really became in the process of writing. Um, and then, as I was there in the archives, I um, and and when I returned from the archives, I wanted to capture precisely that creativity that went into the making of this culture. And I was really sort of, I was really frustrated with um, with the literature on Russian Westernization uh, that's very much about. You know, superficial Westernization, and very much about kind of copy and imitation mm. and derivativeness of, of Russian culture. And so I was, I wanted to find some sort of um, explanatory mechanism or some sort of right, some sort of larger paradigm that would capture exactly what I was I was um, reading in the archives, and that is that investment and and creativity and the remaking mm. of things, mm. remaking of text. Um, and so translation became my way of um, kind of, I stumbled upon it and it became my way of doing that. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad. That, I'm really glad that that you said, um, you know, that that creativity comes across, um, because I was hoping that yeah. it would. No, it really does, and I found it very moving actually. Um, and I really sort of, when I was reading, I was thinking, gosh, I really want, I really want um, people from wh- whichever culture said book is from, like Catching the Rye Americans, to to sort of read this and. And understand the investment that went into it, that it kind of went beyond just a mechanical translation, but a real urge to share. Of course, the end of the book is um, incredibly sad in a way. We're talking about this Eden that Dovlato spoke of, the Eden that he thought about going west to, to see Paris and die. And then, and then this 
the reality of the emig- of the emigration experience so so in the end of the book you talk about not the not the the experience of western culture within the soviet union but when people began to physically leave and and you talk very eloquently and 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 movingly about the disappointment and the dispossession and all these difficult things the disintegration of disintegration of self esteem all these things that go with that experience and the book by limona fits me eddie and um it's uh it's a very um it's a very sad story and i was particularly struck with how you wrote about when the soviet union fell then this idea of the west also fell um and i don't know i suppose i wanted to ask you if you see yourself as an emigrant if you see yourself or if you see yourself in this in this legacy somewhere and where you see yourself and and how writing the book kind of maybe affected your ideas about that uh what i what i try to do in the epilogue is use immigration uh, both as a reality uh, but also as an analog or, um, of or as a metaphor uh, for the disintegration of the Soviet Union itself. And I was really struck just by uh, the parallels, the parallels that emigre, uh, you know, in emigre experience and the experience um, of the whole country after 1991. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I was struck by... Uh, parallels in terms of work in terms of instability everyday life the loss of um or re reinvention uh, of the language that people had to speak um the loss of um you know certain uh, certain um uh certain things that people took for granted or uh, or assumed were stable and never and never thought about um, the very similar histories about the the fall and the rise, um, and very similar kinds of hopes uh, once again for for a better future. So I was um, rather than you know talk about uh, rather than talk about 1991 uh, itself, I wanted to look a little beyond, and I wanted I was looking for. Um, you know, for some way to write about it, and it struck me that th- these are very similar experiences to uh, what I uh, I was reading about immigration, mm-hmm. um, and so that's that's you know what I what I try to do in in the epilogue to create the sort of uh, uh, me- metaphorical parallels. Um, a larger uh, a larger argument or a larger sort of a larger aim of uh, the epilogue is. Um, is to say that uh, the West was this sort of utop- you know, the Soviet West was this utopian world that was very much a, a part and parcel of the Soviet world. Uh, and I tried to suggest in the epilogue that they disintegrated together, that that, it dis- that the Soviet West disintegrated together with the Soviet Union. Um, that it's really, it's not just disappointment, but it's really sort of dispossession and collapse. Mm. Um, because the Soviet Union was a particular kind of information space that was governed by deficit and this sort of this paucity and fragmented quality of information Mm. the closed borders the impossibility of experiencing that life beyond soviet borders firsthand maintain this vision of a beautiful life right Mm. um so for instance even you know even soviet propaganda and i tried to talk about this uh, to show how this worked in um in the last chapter on travelogues um where you know, very much that was said in Soviet in the Soviet press 
about Western cultures was highly formulaic and more often than not, it was negative. And people increasingly stopped believe, believing those formulas and they constructed this sort of a Western world that was the opposite of what the Soviet press, right? It was very much based on the movies and the books they were reading, but it was also the opposite, or the movies they were seeing, but it was also the opposite of what uh, the Soviet press would tell them. So if newspapers you know, described uh, the homeless wearing rags and hunting through dumpsters, and mm. then the people would take that as a lie, and and they would take you know then the truth, the the truth, and they operated in these sort of absolutes of mm. you know a, a singular truth. So then the truth was was the opposite that there were no dumpsters and no homeless, and that all the streets were wonderful and clean, and all the people were young and beautiful like they're in the movies. Um, so following this sort of contrarian opposing logic, people created this utopian vision of the West, um, and. I, I think that's part of the tragedy that I tried to describe in the epilogue, part of that dispossession. As we write histories, I mean, they're always in some sense personal stories. Um, and, and of course, my own, uh, my own experiences and memories uh, shaped um, both my approach and the kinds of things I was looking for and the kinds of things I thought uh, were important to write about. Um, but, uh, and, and, and the very, you know, the very kind of initial motivation for writing this book, uh, was uh, a memory, um, a memory of, of growing up in the Soviet Union when there was so very much in my, uh, childhood that was non-Soviet or kind of Soviet and non-Soviet at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. Non-Soviet in origin and Soviet in its habitus. Um, and that meant books and that meant, uh, movies and, um, that meant movie theaters and enormous lines that, you know, kind of snaking around the corner that adults would form to watch something like marriage Italian style. Um, and, you know, us kids were, of course, really bored and grumpy in those lines and didn't know what to do with ourselves. Um, and I wanted to understand uh, how all of this could have happened, sort of what, when and why and by what channels all this came to the Soviet Union and how these um, imports became ultimately became so invisible, such an inseparable part of Soviet life. Mm. So of course, in the beginning, uh, you know, this, this project started with, um, you know, with a, with a memory and thinking about the present day and, uh, and what remains, um, and, uh, where we find ourselves today. Um, and those technological and, um, uh, you know, those opportunities for travel, which are so significantly broader today than at any for so many more people than at any earlier point in Russian history right um, or thinking about communications technologies um, and um, thinking about my um, my first immigration years um, or uh, my first years as, as an emigre uh, I still remember how difficult it was to call uh, to the Soviet Union to call on the phone mm. and how you had to dial zero and uh, you know, and recite the number you're trying to call, and then you'd be on hold, right? So you're dialing the operator, and you'd be on hold for hours and hours, and then suddenly you would hear this voice that said, you know, um, speak, you're on the line. And the voice literally came from out of sp outer space. Mm -hmm. I mean, this, it was so far away, like it was just a faint echo. Um, and so, you know, today you can dial any number, on your phone, you can talk across the world on Skype as we're doing now. Uh, you can live out any experience vicariously 
uh, through the blogosphere, through new mapping possibilities, right? You can access pretty much anything and everything, any text uh, and any image and any sound um, and, uh, you know, in Russia and around the world. And so I, um, I think those are important legacies that, uh, again, this age of the kind of mass, um, of mass media, the rise of mass media and the rise of mass travel, mass tur- tourism uh, uh, left uh, for our own day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this is where we sort of find our, ourselves. I don't think we, um, I don't think we went sort of, you know, back to some kind of closedness, you know, to isolationism. Uh, I think, um, you know, I think walking in Moscow, um, or actually in, uh, you know, being in a provincial city where you could order online pretty much anything you want. Um, so walking in Moscow just is sort of is a testimony uh, to how that, um, that uh, kind of pendulum metaphor doesn't quite capture mm. uh, the reality and how much remains and what these traces mean uh, and how it all remains as part of collective, collective memory um, and how it def- shaped um, the subsequent opportunities um, for experiencing the world that people have today. Mm-hmm. Um, while being aware that I'm part of the story, I tried um, not to make myself part of the story and I tried to follow the sources. I tried to follow my readers and viewers' um, letters and comment books that they left um, and sort of follow, you know, even as I knew that there are certain things that uh, and experiences and, and memories that define what I'm looking at and what I'm doing. I try to follow the the clues in the documents, uh, and and I try to keep an open mind. And I tried not to make this book about myself, but yeah. about them, about yeah. my subjects.